to take your Bible, open it up to Ephesians chapter 5. When you look at the theme for today, you might think, you guys are off by one week. Uh, Are you not uh, aware that next week is Valentine's Day? And you should have saved walk in love for Valentine's Day. And, you know, that's a really great observation. And if we were driven by Hallmark, we would probably take you up on that. Um, This just happens to be the next section in our study on Ephesians, so that's why we are where we are. So view it as a prep for Valentine's Day, or just consider what the scripture has to say and forget about Valentine's Day. This is a call for us to walk in love, and we see this in connection to a beautiful section, a very practical area of the book of Ephesians. And so I want you to consider this with me, and and I want to set the stage by encouraging you to think about the digression that can happen if we're not careful. Because the first verse, it starts out really positively, mimic God. Second verse, be like Jesus. And then all of a sudden we have a list of things not to do. How not to uh, act, how not to talk, and then how not to worship. And so it goes from really good to really bad really quickly. And I was reminded as my mind has been thinking about urban ministry in Minneapolis, Minnesota, the time of running a youth group in Minneapolis, Minnesota. And while there, we had this idea of running an all-night activity. And I've mentioned to you before a little bit about this. I thought it was a great idea for so many reasons. Concentrated time with the teens, an opportunity to really connect and be creative. And by the way, for urban teens, it's really important to get them out of their 10-block radius, which is all they know. That's their whole world. And they know how to survive in that world. They don't really know or stop to consider there's life outside of that 10-block radius. I actually don't have to shoot and kill in order to survive. I can actually treat people differently like human beings, right? So to take them out of the city into a camp setting was, I thought, a really great idea. So we did it. And we had a great time starting out in the lodge doing different games. And then the great idea, right, and, and you'll see how this turns out to be not so great, is to have a scavenger hunt activity where the teens would go look for the youth sponsors. So groups of teens went together hunting down youth sponsors in this 100-acre camp. And they didn't know it was 100 acres, but um, I, I, we were keeping it to maybe 10 or whatever. And um, I, was, uh, I was super excited about it. I let the youth sponsors go, and then I followed up behind, and I let the teens go. And then I decided to walk through and see how it's going. I knew where all the youth sponsors were located. I knew where the groups were supposed to go. And as I'm walking along, I start to hear some weird things in the bushes. I think to myself, this must be an animal. Are there bears up here? Maybe, I don't know, raccoons probably. No, more noises. And so I go to the noise, and there's a couple teenagers, guy and girl, making out. What? You guys, what are you doing? Uh, I mean, it's dark, and oh, you guys don't even like each other. I know, but, you know, opportunity. I said, Seriously? And and that wasn't the end of it, because as I saw that, I was terrified, thinking, what have I done? And I start to hear more noises in another location, and I go and find out the exact same thing happening. So I got the blowhorn out, and everybody back. The activity is done into the lodge where we can keep eyeballs on you. And we did that for the rest of the night, and I remember how terrible that was. Um, Not super exciting. And I say to you that a lot of times our good intentions can turn bad quickly, right? And so I want to encourage you to take something that is extremely positive, which would be the first two examples of God and how we should mimic him and Jesus Christ and how he died for us, which is what we just got done singing about, and then look at the vices. And we need to learn 
how to yield ourselves to the Spirit. So here's my simple three-point outline for you. The very first verse, and I'm going to actually tie it into verse 32 of chapter 4 of Ephesians, because it gives us an example of God and his great forgiveness. Have confidence in your relationship with God. If you're going to walk in love, you need to have confidence that you are beloved. The second point is looking to Jesus Christ, find direction from the example of Jesus Christ. And look at how he gave himself up voluntarily and was slaughtered for us, literally. And then we look at our need as we look at all the vices to walk in the spirit or else any of us could be subject to any of these things. That's what we need to consider. So I hope you notice the Trinity, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. That's deliberately in this text in this way. And then there's also this emphasis on walk, which I've, I've told you many times before in other sermons, and I have it outlined for you in the notes if you're downloading those from pbcpowdersville.org, but you'll see it started in, in verse 1 of chapter 1 about walking, and it talks about walking in unity. And then it transitions in verse 17 to walking in holiness, and it talks about things that we're going to refer to right now, and it leads into this idea of how we communicate, which was the sermon a couple weeks ago. And then... We're here in walking in love. Technically speaking, you could actually outline this text from verses 1 through 6. And I'm just giving you some structure stuff because I think it's important. You see the word in verse 7? It starts out with therefore. That word therefore is a marker in our reading. So verse 1 of chapter 5, therefore be imitators. And then in verse 7, therefore do not become partners with them. So you could actually connect verse 7 with the walking in light, I'm using it because of the natural flow. It talks about all the things we're not supposed to do and how we're not supposed to talk and not supposed to worship. And, and there's a call, therefore, based on all that, don't even partner with them. Then he breaks down the light portion. So different people will, trans, uh, will, will interpret it differently and put it in sections. But I do think it's important for all of us when I start to preach, when anyone starts to preach, that you see what the Bible is saying and make sure that we're getting from the scriptures what the original authors intended for us to see, not just my ideas on how loving we should all be. So with that in mind, let's start with this first one about having confidence in your relationship with God. Just note in attention to this first point in, in chapter 4, verse 32, and I have two points under here, this walking in love. Remember this, that you are completely forgiven. So when Paul calls you, when he calls me, to walk, which is go about my daily business. It's a present active imperative, which means it's a command. It's not an option to treat other believers with love. I do it based on the fact that I have been forgiven and I am the recipient of unbelievable love from God. Notice what it says in verse 32. Be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another. Notice as God in Christ forgave you. What a great reminder of forgiveness here. It's to give freely as a favor, to give graciously. It's nothing that we deserve. So I want to encourage you to have this confidence in your relationship with God. And with, if you know of someone in your life who has offended you and has asked for you to forgive them because of the offense, I encourage you to forgive them. Because it's your duty to forgive them. And it's actually, I'll put it beyond that, it's your delight as you understand what you have been forgiven of. Notice the next, the, the next verse, which is verse 1 of chapter 5, you are fully loved. This is an interesting statement here. 
Be, therefore, be imitators of God. Now, how do we do this, be imitators of God? Well, this is an, uh, a, a challenging thought because to be an imitator of God is impossible. If you don't know that I'm, I'm being serious about that, Matthew 5.48 says, be perfect as your heavenly father is perfect. Okay, <laughs> so I'm supposed, okay, how do I do that exactly? Now, you might know the answer to it, and I hope you do, that the only way we can come close to this is get rid of our own righteousness as the means of perfection and embrace the righteousness of Jesus Christ. That's the end of verse 32 of chapter 4. So I look to Jesus Christ, who has made me perfect in his sight. But it's hard for us to understand what that means. And in Luke, I think it's 6.36, it talks about the idea, the example of being merciful, uh, yeah, Luke 6.36, being merciful. So to mimic God means I am one who is perfect without sin, and I'm one who is merciful to those that are around me. So I have the power to crush them, but I'm going to hold back because I'm not going to crush them because God didn't crush me. The word for mimic literally means to uh, do what this word sounds like, to copycat, to, to look at someone, and this is you know, what p- kids do with the parents, um, I was trying to think about how to describe this. You know sometimes when you see a father-son combination, it's just very obvious. I think in, in my case, because we go with the very cheap haircuts, that you can tell who are my boys. Um, no longer can you with Elijah, because he's like, Dad, Mom, can I please get my own haircut? And so, yes, at age 17, he has that right. And probably maybe before then, Judah's already starting to ask that. But we all have the same buzz cut, mine by convenience, theirs also by convenience. We kind of look alike, Right? But do they mimic me in the same way? Um, you know, sometimes, sometimes you see it happen. Uh, for those of you that have seen Bible Conference at Bob Jones University, another illustration of someone who's father-son mimicking thing, there, there's this father who protests outside the front campus, and he has a hat on sometimes and a black overcoat, and he has a son who has a hat on and a black overcoat, and he's mimicking his dad. So when you see that, think about mimicking, modeling dad. And what we see here is an amazing concept of what God does in this verse as beloved children. We're going to see the word for love, agape, used in different forms. And this word beloved is agape sen. So agape being the source of it, which is for God so loved the world type of love. It is giving of self. It is valuing and holding high affection for someone. And I love this. He calls them beloved, and it is in a point in time, it's aorist, which just simply means this. You are beloved because you belong to me. It's not you're beloved because you did exactly what I told you to do. You're beloved because you belong. This is super important to grab onto. You're beloved the moment you are saved. I'd even suggest that you're beloved the moment you're created, but you're loved the moment you're created, maybe be loved the moment you're believed, you believe and you're a a believer and you receive Jesus. But I, I want you to get this point, that God values his own, he values you. If you understand that, you have confidence in the way you treat others and the way you walk in love. So I want to encourage you to value others. Just really simply. And I know you say, that's so very basic. Pastor Jason, can you please teach us something that we haven't learned before? No, I'm just teaching you what Paul says. Okay, he's saying, mimic God, which is near impossible apart from Jesus Christ. 
And we're to mimic him in being perfect like he is perfect, being merciful as he is merciful, and valuing others, as it says in this verse, the way he values others. And I thought to myself about a way to help you grab onto this concept of viewing other people as valuable. And and I I wanna bring this up to you because this is important for you to hear me say, the illustration I'm gonna use is coming from a movie called Schindler's List. And why is this important for you to hear? First and foremost, in order to be consistent with what the scripture teaches in the rest of this passage, I want to encourage you to consider using VidAngel. And you might say, oh, not that again. No, I'm going to do it again. Because it's really good for you to consider what you're bringing into your eyes, what you're bringing into your heart, and to be able to use a, a, a means to cut out language and sensuality, but get the message of the movie is a good thing. So I'm, I'm using this illustration with that context in mind, and I'm doing it without any shame. I'm encouraging you to consider that. But I think movies can communicate such powerful concepts. And so in this movie, businessman Oscar Schindler, Liam Neeson, who we're going to see, arrives in Krakow in 1939, ready to make his fortune at the very beginning of World War II. And so he gets started and builds a factory, and the, the, he becomes part of the Nazi party. And he ends up, because of pragmatic reasons, employing a lot of Jewish people. And in that process, he's able to hire them for very cheaply. And then he starts to, for pragmatic reasons, because he's making money, protecting them. And making sure they're not taken into concentration camps. And at the very end of the movie, his perspective changes and how he views people. And I want you to see this. Let that soak in. And this is what I think. I think that we treat people as inconveniences unless they benefit us. Schindler, in this movie and in real life, treated people as good if they took care of his needs and brought him more money. As believers, imitators of God, we must view one another as beloved and really care deeply about them. Do you care deeply about anyone outside of your own family? Do you care deeply about the people in your community group? Do you care deeply about the people that come to this church? Do you realize we all have a story and we're living out that story? Do you care about them at that level? If you don't, the challenge is pretty clear. Mimic God. As God views us as beloved, you view others. View me. Help. I need to view you as beloved. Do you know how radically that will change our church? That's walking in love. Notice Jesus Christ. This is the second point. Find the direction. So we have God who did that very thing by being perfect and merciful and and loving those that were his own. Notice find direction. In verse 2, we see a series of things that I'm just going to highlight for you just right out of the verse. Notice it says here that he is one who walk in love. This is a command, so I want to remind you that it's something that Jesus did in his modeling of doing whatever God the Father wanted him to do. He walked in love. He did it obediently. And this is the idea of esteem or with high affection, and this is something that we need to do on a regular basis. And to illustrate this, I wanted to show you something about how Christ loved. He walked in love, It goes on to say that his love is demonstrated by this statement 
as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us. Don't miss this, and this is just the gospel laid out for us. Christ loved us and he gave himself for us. So this is selfless love, obedient, selfless love. And in this obedient, selfless love, he is one who does it tastefully, but because it talks about how he does it in a way that's a fragrant offering. So I would suggest that our love should not be distasteful in the sight of others, but actually should be one done in an appropriate way to bring others towards God and not something that draws attention to self. And finally, he loved completely. We see that it was an offering and sacrifice to God. This is an offering and sacrifice, how it's connected. Now, to demonstrate what I'm saying here about obedient love, our opportunity to model Christ's likeness, Jesus willingly gave up himself for others. He willingly did this. In the notes, I have for you examples of this stated clearly in John 10, 11, John 10, 15, John 10, 17 through 18, Galatians 1, 4, Hebrews 9, 14. This is a, a pleasing offering, a, set, a, a fragrant sense. And this is an inter- interesting combination of the words. Fragrant means odor. And in the Greek, it's osmen odious. It's not just a scent, because we can all give that off, but it is a scent that is sweet-smelling. And so our love towards those around us should be a sweet-smelling scent, and sometimes we need to slow down and ask ourselves the question, are we giving off that kind of a scent? All throughout the Old Testament, there's pictures of burnt offerings and peace offerings and sin offerings that before God are pleasing in his sight. Leviticus 1 through 3, listen to this. The burnt offering, the meal offering, and the peace offering. The burnt offering pictures Christ's complete devotion to God. The meal offering, his perfection of character. And the peace offering, his making peace between sinners and God. Since the sin offering and the trespass offering, Leviticus 4 through 5, picture Christ taking the place of the sinner. They are not considered sweet savoring offerings. Certainly nothing is beautiful about sin. But he offers exactly what we need, that sweet-smelling sacrifice. And by the way, um, I want to just focus your attention on that phrase, for us. The for us is an example of Christ substituting himself for you and for me. That's substitutionary atonement, and that is absolutely powerful because he alone is the one who could die for us. I can't die for you and it mean anything in light of eternity. But Jesus, perfect, sinless son of God, took on all of your sin, all of it, no matter what you've thought, said, or done, he took it on himself and he says, believe in me, I will have victory over that sin and rise from the grave and offer you a place with God. I'm doing it for you. That's powerful. But then as I spend some time looking at those words Fragrant, we got that down, right? It's not in it. The word fragrant in the English is actually two words in the Greek, so it's smelling, but it's sweet smelling. But the word offering and the word sacrifice, they're given to God, but please note this difference. Offering is the word for surrendering yourself or the sacrifice. It's actually making the choice to bring it to God, to make this offering, it's, I'm, I'm coming here and here it is. Sacrifice is the slaughtering of that offering. So check this out. 
It's one thing for you to be moved by a sermon to say, I will follow Jesus to the ends of the earth. It's another thing to get on that plane to go to the ends of the earth. One thing is talk, the other is walk. And sometimes we get really good at saying, oh no, I, I surrender all, I surrender all. And then the next day comes and someone asks you to participate in some vulgar conversation and you just kind of laugh it off, feel uncomfortable, but you don't stand up for Jesus. Sometimes people like to say it's easier to die for Jesus than to live for Jesus. And I'm asking you to consider that Jesus Christ, as the greatest example, said, I give myself to you, and he was in complete control of that. But when the time came for him to sacrifice himself and to be slaughtered, he did it willingly. So that you understand that Jesus was in complete control, I want to demonstrate something to you. Take your Bible, turn over to John chapter 2. So we'll stay in the Gospel of John. Just really quickly look at a couple aspects. John chapter 2, verse 4. There's a phrase that's repeated throughout the Gospels about Jesus. The wedding at Canaan, he's talking to his mom. Jesus said to her, woman, what does this have to do with me? I think he was actually being more respectful than it may sound as you hear me read it to you. He's talking to his mother, Mary. But notice the phrase that I want you to see, my hour has not yet come. Look at chapter 7 in John. Turn over there, chapter 7, or click there in your Bible. Chapter 7, verse 6. This is at the Feast of Booths. Jesus said to them, My time has not yet come, but your time is always here. Look at verse 8. You go up to the feast. I'm not going up to this feast, for my time has not yet fully come. Look at verse 30 of chapter 7. We see again, So they were seeking to arrest him, but no one laid hands on him because his hour had not yet come. And I have a series of verses for you to consider where Jesus continually says, my time hasn't come, my time hasn't come. He was in complete control. He could have held back his sacrifice, but he decided, I'm going to obey. I'm going to do it for you. I'm going to do it in a way that's pleasing to God. I'm going to do it in a way that is me giving myself, surrendering, and it's a complete slaughter for the glory of God. I love Acts 1-7 where it talks about the angels to, or Jesus to the disciples. You, it's not for you to know the timing or the seasons that God has prepared, but you shall be witnesses. The Holy Ghost will come upon you. You shall be witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, and Samaria. A lot of times we don't know timing stuff. Just trust God. Surrender all and be willing to slaughter yourself. The, the whole idea of Romans 12, 1 and 2, a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable unto God, which is your reasonable act of worship. To illustrate this, I was thinking of the Aesop's fable, and this is somewhat hilarious to me because here, Aesop's fable, this was in a book by Aesop intended for those five years of age and younger. And here in this story, you've probably heard about the boy who cried wolf. He was taking care of all the sheep for the town, and he was kind of getting bored sitting out on the hill all the time, so he decided to cry wolf. And he said, wolf, wolf, a wolf is here. And so all the men came up with their pitchforks and whatever things they could turn from farm equipment into weapons, and they found the boy chilling out on a hill, on a tree, and then it actually happened. A wolf came, he cries out, and nobody comes. And in Aesop's fable, the wolf eats the boy. So happy story, good night, little five-year-old kid. But I just think that a lot of times, 
we say, I'm willing to go. I'm willing to do. And then the time comes, we're chilling out. We have all sorts of reasons why we, this isn't a good time. This isn't a good situation. I got to wait. And God is saying, just follow Jesus. He'll make it very clear. Notice the last one. And this is really the bulk of this text. And I've taken the bulk of my time on the first two. Um, But whatever. I guess I got a lot on my heart. Let's talk about this first one. Um, All I'm going to show you, I'm going to show you an example of, from verses 3 through 7, that if we don't practice discernment with the help of the Spirit, we'll have problems. Okay? Notice verse 3. Some heavy-hitting terms. But sexual immorality and all impurity or covetousness must not even be named among you as is proper among saints, the hagios, the set-apart ones, the holy ones. So he goes from imitate God, mimic him, be like Jesus, to but, big contrast. And he brings up words that are really disturbing. Now I want to encourage you in these words, if you look down at them, this idea of sexual immorality, in the Greek it is porneia. Okay, let me help you make a quick connection. Porneia and pornography. Pornography should not have a place in the life of a Christian. And it has a place in the lives of many of you. And I want to encourage you that Jesus Christ has paid the price for that sin where you're giving in to the lust of the flesh and you can be set free. In fact, I'm going to suggest to you, if you're a believer, you have already been set free. So choose to live like someone who has been set free. And choose to seek help, which would be the help of Jesus and the power of the Holy Spirit and the community around you that you have at church to encourage you, where you'll find that in your community groups. We have to be a place where we're willing to say to each other, because of love, I need you to know something. I'm struggling in this area. This is not who I am. I am a believer, but I'm struggling and I need help. And there is opportunity. But he says, practice discernment. He brings up immorality. And it's not just pornography. It's illicit sex, fornication. Notice he goes on to say, and all impurity. Impurity is the word for uncleanness, filthiness, a state of moral impurity, especially in relationship to sexual sin. And then he throws in, or covetousness. That seems like an odd combination because the other two are very sexual in orientation. Why covetousness? Well, covetousness literally means greed, insatiableness, or exploitation a strong desire to acquire more and more material possessions or to possess more things than other people have, all irrespective of need. And when I think of covetousness, it's the very thing that drives us to go for more of the illicit sex, the porn, all that stuff. It's just like, I gotta have more. It's never enough. And so I wanna encourage you by the power of the Holy Spirit to guard your heart. Guard your heart. Out of it flows the issues of life. And when I look at this list, I'm sitting there going, man, that's, yikes, that's hardcore stuff. Well, actually, it's the very type of thing that he already talked about in verse 19 of chapter 4. They have all become callous and have given themselves up to sensuality, greedy, to practice every kind of impurity. But this is not the way you've learned Christ, it says. So we need to be careful. It starts with how we think. And ultimately, we're going to see it's centered in how we worship. Now, if you have this problem with your heart it's going to produce verse 4 type of things, which is an uncontrolled tongue. And I want to encourage you to control your tongue. 
I almost used the term tame your tongue, but when I read James 4, it says no man can tame the tongue, so I figured I wouldn't ask you to do something, although I've already asked you to be perfect as God is perfect. So maybe there's a connection to that. But I think the word here for the idea of controlling your tongue maybe fits a little bit better. Here it talks about a series of ways that we talk. Let there be no filthiness. That filthiness is to act in defiance of social or moral standards. So to start talking and joking about things that are just inappropriate for the audience in front of you. It can produce shame and embarrassment to those listening to you. Don't let that be said about you. How about foolish talk? This is the idea where we get morose. It's just stupid. It's indecent. It's dirty. Crude joking. This is the idea of coarse jesting, turning everything that you do or see into some sort of sexual joke. There are sitcoms built all around this. Jesting is a translation of a word which means able to turn easily. This suggests a certain kind of conversationalist who can turn any statement into a coarse jest. The gift of wit is a blessing, but when it is attached to a filthy mind or base motive, it becomes a curse. Use your mind for better things. You're a believer. You've been bought with the blood of the lamb. And so I show you a picture here of something that is true for a paraplegic. There's actually ways in which you can take your tongue and direct your wheelchair or access your phone. Um, they, they have developed things to take something that could be used for evil to use it for good. James says these things, not blessings and cursings, shouldn't come out of the same mouth. And so I encourage you to ask yourself the question, how am I doing with my speech? And I found that if you are involved in immorality of any sort, you're free usually with your tongue to joke about it. So normally we don't know about the secret sins of someone, but you do talk with people and you can start to pick up, I, I wonder if my brother or my sister is struggling in this area. Now, remember, take the beam out of your own eye before you take the toothpick out of theirs. But you do need to care enough, love, walk in love so that you're addressing these things. Why is this so serious? Well, I think ultimately we need to check your passport. Look what it says in verse 5. For you may be sure of this. I think he's getting pretty uh, serious about it. And by the way, I, I, I didn't mean to skip over the fact, but instead in verse 4, let there be thanksgiving. Please forgive me for not bringing that up. There's a positive side. Instead of all this crude, foolish jesting, replace it with thanksgiving, right? That's the put off, put on. If we're thankful, we're not thinking about what we don't have and what we want to get. We're like, man, God has been so good to me. So thankfulness is super important. But then this is, he, he says, just to make sure you get this, to be sure of this, this is serious business. He says that, for you may be sure of this, that everyone who is sexually immoral or impure or who is covetousness, it's the same words that we found already in verse 4. If you are characterized by this, and then he gives this phrase, he says, which is idolatry. This is an interesting connection because Paul here uses this phrase that this is ultimately a worship issue. You actually are worshiping yourself. So if you're caught up in that, you need to go back to the heart. Who am I worshiping? What am I worshiping? And I want to encourage you to replace your worship of your gut with your worship of God, Philippians chapter 3. I have a lot of other things in the notes that you can look at that connects those three words, how they're found together in four out of seven times 
throughout the New Testament, which helps us see that it is really a worship issue. That's why it's super important that you make this a priority to come to church on Sunday so we can worship together. And it's important that you don't view worship as a one day a week sort of thing, but a 24-7 type proposition. That's why when you hear me or others say, read your Bible, pray every day, and you grow, 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 it's not just that simple, but it is actually that simple. And then finally, exercise wisdom. Let no one deceive you with empty words. So, you know, if you get deceived, the end of verse 5 says you're not going to be in heaven. Like, this is serious business. We're talking about a matter of eternity here. So I cry out to you, if you found yourself given over to all of this lust, jesting, and false worship, are you truly a follower of Jesus? If you're not, come to him today. And then don't let the world deceive you with empty words. This deception is present, active, imperative. Don't let it happen. Describes the activity of someone who misleads someone else. I think Paul here is referring to false teachers in the church. Don't let it happen. Most false teachers are manifested by these things that we've just listed, as you end up finding out about it. How many times do you hear about these great churches and everything's going well, and then, oh, wait, manifestation of false teaching a second Peter or Jude sort of thing. Empty words would be words lacking purpose. Listen to what people say. If they're stupid words, untrue words, call them on that. Say, no, I'm not going to stand for that. In fact, he says, don't even be partners with them. And that's why I added that verse 7. This is to share it in possession or relationship with someone Actually, you want to know what kind of partnership you should have? Ephesians 3, 6 tells us it's partnership, partnership with Jesus Christ and the blessings that he offers. There's a better way. And I want to encourage you to walk in it. Walk in love. So to wrap this up, I read the cliff notes for Lord of the Flies. And I have them in your notes. I'm just going to refer to it in just this way. It's a story of a group of boys during World War II who have their plane crash land because of an atomic bomb. So they're getting all the kids together and they're trying to get them out to safety. The plane crashes on this remote island and all you have would be adolescents running the show. And it's an interesting overview of what happens in the downgrade of the uh, leadership rising and murder taking place of two boys, the, uh, the fear of the unknown, which is the Lord of the Flies, which ends up being a dead pilot that floated down. And it's dark, but actually very revealing of the human heart. And I want to tie into why I chose that to, to conclude this sermon, because I think at the end, after all of this is taking place, all of this depravity and murder and, and uh, just disgusting things, there is a, a section here. I'm just jumping into the end. The following morning, Jack orders his tribe to begin to hunt for Ralph. Jack and Ralph are in competition for leadership. Jack's savages set fire to the forest while Ralph desperately weighs his options for survival. Following a long chase, most of the island is consumed in flames, 
with the hunters closely behind him, Ralph trips and falls. He looks at a uniformed adult, a British naval officer whose party had landed from a passing cruiser to investigate the fire. Ralph bursts into tears over the death of one of the boys that was referred to as Piggy and the end of innocence. Jack and the other boys, filthy and uncapped, also revert to their true age and erupt into sobs. The officer expresses his disappointment at seeing British boys exhibiting such wickedness and warlike behavior during a time there's a stare of awkwardness in wartime setting. And so here, check this out. Pretend I'm the naval officer, and I'm asking you just to look at the text. And you've been living a certain way, talking a certain way, engaging in certain things. You know it's wrong. This is not how we've learned Christ. You know that. Return to mimicking God, taking your marching orders from Jesus Christ. Walk in the Holy Spirit. These three principles from this text will help all of us stay on that true path, and they're all available to you. So let me encourage you, love confidently. Don't doubt God's love for you. He loves you. You are his beloved. Love extravagantly, this fragrant sort of love. Don't settle for ordinary expressions of love towards others. And finally, and this is really the bulk of the text, love judiciously. Take some time to walk in the Spirit, because the fruit of the Spirit is love. And it goes on to talk about other aspects of that love in demonstration. If I went too fast, I know I did. Here are the, the points of application. Love confidently don't doubt God's love for you. And if you really get this, you will just over, be overwhelmingly loving to those around you. Love extravagantly. Don't settle for ordinary expressions of love. I'm telling you, every person counts, every person matters. And if we really get that, it's going to change the way we treat people, right? And then love judiciously. Don't let your, your guard down. Let's pray together.